0: Um, actually, I do know what was happening nine months ago. I am quite well informed. Um, I have no idea how we just went down that bunny trail. Uh, let's get started. Um, I'm a storyteller. I'm sure you've noticed um, that I love to tell stories. I love to hear stories. Um, in fact, Esther and I are both uh, storytellers. And, and actually, a better way of saying that is we are both a storyteller. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Esther is the keeper of our stories. Uh, She knows all my stories. She knows all our stories. And she has this amazing knack for knowing where a story should go and which story should be told at any given moment. But she doesn't want to be clunky and go, hey, tell that one story about the one thing. Hey, tell that one story. You know, so what she does uh, is she starts telling a story. And then just at the right time, she pauses. And in that pause, I pick up the story and I take it over from then on out. I finish Uh, the story. Um, we've never worked this out on purpose. It's just, we've kind of grown into it. Uh, And recently we were at Leslie and Sean's house and we'd been talking for a couple hours for a a long time. And uh, and Leslie finally stops us and goes, "Okay, hold on a second. Esther has started like 10 stories and Chris, you finished all of them. I think she was getting frustrated that I wouldn't let Esther talk. Like she was like, every time she tries to tell a story, you take it over. And I was like, no, that's what we do. That's how she that's how she tell every once in a while I mess with Esther. She'll start a story and I'll just sit there and watch her. And she doesn't know what to do. She's like, are you going to? Are you going to do the thing? But anyway, uh, and of course, there's a certain way stories have to be told. It's an art, right? Storytelling is an art. Knowing just when to let out the crucial details and how long to hold the suspense before you drop the punchline. It's more than just communicating what happened. It's uh, it's taking the listener on a journey um, through what happened. And believe it or not, that actually bears heavily uh, on the way we read the Bible. Um, So I thought what we'd do today is we'd start off with a a little writing lesson, um, which I thought would be fun. I don't think I'm actually qualified to teach on writing, but um, but I will let you maybe see behind the curtain a little bit and how I how I piece together my sermons. And that might bother some people. You know, some people say you don't want to know how the sausage is made. You know, nobody wants to see how the sausage is made. Um, But I think it bears on today's message. So I'm going to let you see. Uh, behind the curtain just a little bit. I don't know how many of you remember your like early high school writing classes, but they say that every persuasive writing piece needs three elements. Anybody remember what they are? Good. they make it more fun. Logos, pathos, and ethos. Anybody remember those words from way, way back? No, you took the test and you just forgot it, didn't you? That's what, yeah. Um, logos, pathos, and ethos. These actually go all the way back to Greek writing. Um, and, it, and it shows up strongly in biblical writing, which is why I think it's fun to talk about it. Logos is information. And I'm not talking about the logos, like from John in the beginning was the logos. I'm, this is lowercase logos. It's a, it's a Greek word that just means truth or information or knowledge. Um, this is the data. The logos is data. It's the information. This is where. Theological debates happen. Uh, and the main point of Logos is to transfer information, is to teach somebody something. Um, so if I were to tell you that Doug and Kerry's party starts at 7 o'clock tonight, that would be Logos. That would be the information. That would be data that you need. In the Bible, the primary way that we, Logos is communicated is called prose discourse um it this is speeches letters essays commands this is all logos it's it's where we get that stuff all of paul's writings would be considered prose discourse uh the intent would be to communicate a particular set of information and it generally follows a logical pattern where one thought builds on another that's logos okay on, and only 25% of the bible is written in prose discourse so only, only about a quarter of the bible is written In the kind of language that's intended to communicate information that way, like truth, which is interesting. Pathos is the emotional appeal of the writing piece. Um, If if you're writing a persuasive speech about starving children, the logos would be like the statistics about how many kids starve every year. But the pathos would be Max, this kid who had so much potential and so much life. And then and then Max, uh, it's wasted because Max is starving, Like. You don't change policy for one kid ever. And so really in a persuasive piece, it's piece that's meaningless, except no real change happens until we're emotional. And so so pathos is what you put in the paper to grip somebody's emotion. It's it's the emotional part of the writing. Um, and in the Bible, pathos comes from Poetry which is kind of interesting. Um, the, the job of poetic writing um, is to capture the emotion and, and communicate an experience. It's not necessarily to, to communicate direct truth, you know, thus says the Lord. No, it's, it's more, uh, it's more to, to get you to experience and feel something. Um, I know a lot of you have heard me use this example, but the fish story, you know, the classic fish story is, is pathos. You know, you, you, you cast, you know, you catch a fish. He's a fighter, you know, and it was fun, and it was, oh, you're, you know, and you're fighting with this thing a little bit. And you get it up, and it's a fish, you know. And you tell somebody, man, I got, I got this amazing bass. It was a fish. And they're like, cool. And you're like, no, you didn't get it. Like, that's, you didn't, you're not experiencing with me. So the next time you tell it, the fish was this big. And you're like, man, I brought that thing in, and it was a fish. And they're like, oh, man, that's a pretty good fish. You're like, man, you're still not getting it. The next time you tell it, dude, I brought in this whopper. And they're like, whoa. And you're like, yeah, that was it. Whoa. That's what I felt. That's exact. Now you're experiencing it with, now it's not accurate. It's not, but it's, it's accurate in that they're now experiencing with you what you felt when you were bringing that fish in. That's poetry. That's what you do with poetry. You take somebody through a field. How do you, how do you communicate all? Like if, when God just touches you and you're, and you're standing on the top of a mountain and you're weeping because you're just in awe of his handiwork. And you go to communicate that to somebody and they're, like, and they're like, oh, I love the mountains. You're like, oh, no, you didn't get it at all. And you're like, the, the, there was, the angels were singing and the sun shone down and there was lightnings and thunders. And they're like, are you serious? You're like, yeah, that's what I felt. Now you're, that's what poetry does. And so, so, and so what's interesting is 33% of the Bible is written in, in Jewish poetic form. And so 33% of the Bible is written in poetry. It's, it's supposed to co- communicate an experience and an emotion. And that brings you to the last one, which is ethos. And ethos is way harder to talk about. Ethos is the weight or the essence or maybe even the, the, the uh, importance of the piece. Typically, you add ethos to the, what well they teach you to add ethos to a paper by, by quoting somebody important. And so if you're doing this paper on starving children, you, you know, and you just say, Sterling children is the most important thing facing our world today. Somebody else goes, well, who are you? Like, that's, that's your opinion. My opinion might be different. You know, but if I quote somebody who's like the, the expert on all the biggest issues of the world today, and they say it's, you know, I'm like this guy who has studied everything there is to study, and he says this is the most important issue. Well, now the paper has weight. It has a different feel to it. And so in sermons, we tend to quote well-known theologians, people that everybody's heard of. You know, that's why we do that. It adds ethos to the sermon. But ethos is more than just credibility. Ethos is also kind of mood and presence. It's the, it's the mood of the piece. Um, and so if I'm preaching at a funeral, everything from my tone of voice to the, the, the jokes I might tell are going to be very different than the ethos if I'm at a corporate event or a nightclub. You know? and, and, it, and it's from the, from the minute you start talking it has ethos, like the ethos sets the mood and the, the theme. And biblically, ethos comes from narrative. Ethos doesn't come from 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 prose discourse or from poetry. It comes from narrative, which makes it way harder to discern. For instance, um, the biblical issue of polygamy. Um, there's been an age-old debate as to whether or not God allows men to have more than one, one uh, wife. Because believe it or not, there are some men in history who actually wanted more than one mother-in-law. I don't get it, but (laughs) I got to sneak in a mother-in-law. I've got a great mother-in-law, but it's, you know. Well, if you treat the narrative of Scripture like Logos, in other words, you look at the lives of Abraham and, and, uh, and Jacob and David and Solomon as though they're trying to communicate some hard fact about what God does and does not allow, then you could walk away with the belief that God allows polygamy, right? Because they did, so maybe we're allowed to. But if you look at the ethos of the narrative, the mood or the the sense of the narrative, you learn the lives of these four men were terrible because they had more than one wife. Every single one of them. Abraham had two wives and they fought over their, their kids and he had to cast out his sonhood that he loved because his other wife was angry about it. Jacob had two wives who fought all the time and the bitterness got so bad that some of the sons sold another one of the sons into slavery over this, this, this relationship. David, you know, obviously had the Bathsheba thing because he... He took her to be his wife and had to kill somebody to do it. Solomon, we know that, that his wife led him into, into idolatry. It got so bad. And so if you were to look at the, the ethos of, of what the Bible says about polygamy, there's not a single happy story about polygamy in the entire scripture. And so you might, if you try to treat it like logos, you go out and say, well, yeah, I'm allowed to, because they were allowed to. But if you treat it like ethos, you would ask the question, what kind of life does the Bible say I can expect if I have more than one wife? And the ethos answers that question clearly. (laughs) Every single story the Bible tells about that is a bad story. So you should walk away going, man, the Bible is not good on polygamy. I mean, the, the ethos of that book is, boy, it just trashes it. Not a single happy story. So let me give you another example. Graham May, who's not here today, um, is an extremely hard worker. I, I've never worked with Graham May, so I don't have any any actual experience of that. I've never um, uh, he's never told me, "Hey, I'm an extremely hard worker." I have no logos, I have no information, but almost every story Graham tells is about him working on something. You know, I'm working on my house. We had to do this at the house. I'm working on, on Austin's house. I was working on our last. That, like, every story is about work. So I can pick up from the ethos of his story, even though he's never said the words, that he's a very hard worker. So that's how ethos works. It's, it's the essence of, of the story. It's what you pick up from the telling of the story. A whopping 43%, actually a little over 43% of the Bible is in narrative form. It's it's uh, so about 24% is prose discourse, just giving you information. 33% is poetry. It's an emotional experience, and 43% is narrative. It's written in narrative form, which means the vast majority of the truth of Scripture comes from the stories about these people, the, the stories of what God did in their life. We pick up the essence. Of God in the narrative. Now, the reason I go back to ninth grade English for everybody is because today's passage is full of ethos. And it's actually, I think, can only be fully understood if we look at it from that perspective. We're going to be reading in chapter five of Acts in case you want to follow along in your own Bible or app. Uh, but if not, the words will be behind me or if you're following online, they'll be right in the middle of your screen. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was all yours to give away, also yours to give away, Uh, how could you have done a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor dead. Everyone who had heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, took him out and buried him. How did he get that job? But three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could you two, how could the two of you think that Uh, of conspiring to test the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, like this. The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. instantly she fell to the floor and died. Then the young men came and saw that she was dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard that. What had happened, the apostles were performing many miracles and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade, but none, no one else dared join them, even though the people held them in high regard. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result, of their apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and their possessed with evil spirits, and those and they were healed. The high priests and the officials were, and, uh, who were Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, put them in jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of jail, and brought them out. And told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple. And they were told, uh, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and the officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of elders of Israel. And they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. And so they returned to the council report. The jail was securely locked, and the guards were standing outside, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard was leading the priests, uh, and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men who were in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. The captain went to the temple guards and arrested the apostles, put them, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders, never again to teach in this man's name. Instead, you filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him. You make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, "We must obey God rather than human authority. For God is uh, the God of our ancestors, raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in a place of honor at his right hand as prince and Savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven." We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to just kill them. And one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chambers for a while. He said, Men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was a fellow named Thaddeus who pretended to be something great. About 400 others joined him. And he was killed, and the followers all went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, uh, at a time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all of his followers were scattered. So my advice is leave the men alone. Let them go. If they're planning on doing these things merely on their own, it'll soon be overthrown. But if it's from God, you you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourself fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called the apostles and had them flogged. And then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Christ. And every day from temple and house to house, they continue to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is a crazy chapter. I know it's kind of long and. I'm not the best reader, but you, to get the ethos, you got to get the whole chapter. I've actually been really excited to dig into this chapter for a couple of weeks now to the point that it's been like hard to focus on what I'm supposed to be studying. Because I kept wanting to go talk about this chapter. Um, but here's the deal. Uh, if you study this chapter looking for logos, for like information, for theology, um, uh, it, this is a tough one. Because Ananias and Sapphira were church members and, and they sold their stuff. And and gave some of the proceeds to the church in church leadership. We call that a win. Like if someone sells something, they want to give a little bit to the church. That's like a good thing. Like we celebrate that. We encourage that. Um, Then, you have the fact that the people were dragging their sick friends into the streets, hoping that the apostle's shadow might kind of cross over them so that they would be healed. I have no idea what to do with that at all like the the amount of time I spend praying for healing for people and trying to understand it and figure out what might twist the arm of God so that he would heal. And these people just put them on the edge of the streets and they were healed. Why? I don't, I don't get that at all. I don't know what theology you pull from that. Then you have this weird thing where they get arrested and an angel miraculously frees them, but then tells them to go back in. And that time they don't get freed and they get flogged. Like, why freed one time for like a morning's worth of sermons and then not the next time? I don't I don't understand at all. So as far as extracting anything doctrinal from this chapter, I wish you luck. It's a tricky chapter, really tough to, to find anything that you would call solid. Of course, this is narrative, so we're not supposed to do that. This is not prose discourse. This is a story, and we're supposed to grab the ethos of this chapter. And the, the, uh, so we have to ask the question, what is the weight the, of this chapter? What is, the, what is the essence of this chapter? Well, for a chapter like this, I think um, this is the perfect question because um, you have to wonder why on earth does Luke tell the Ananias and Sapphira story? Like what purpose could that story serve? If you're trying to gain converts, maybe not the best story to tell. You know, if you're like, hey, come join our thing. If you get it wrong, you fall over dead. No, that's not... It's not an attractive story, so you have to wonder why. Why put this story in there? Um, in fact, I don't know anybody that's comfortable with this story. I don't know a single a single person that that goes here because they like it. Judy, I me, a couple weeks ago, I can't wait to hear what you do with Ananias and Sapphira. Like, no, this story scares everybody, and I think that's the point. I think that's the ethos. Of the passage. In fact, I can. Cons- when I was considering putting a title on this message, my title was going to be "Stuff Just Got Real." Only uh, my wife had to talk me into using "stuff." Like it just got real. Like the funny thing is, the ethos in this passage is not hidden. It's actually pretty black and white. As soon as Ananias uh, heard these things, he fell on the floor dead, and everyone who heard about this was terrified. This is great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard about what had happened. I mean, Luke's pretty blunt about the ethos. This was scary. So it seems that if you read this passage and it kind of scares you and makes you uncomfortable and you don't really know what to do with it. Yeah, you get it. That's a, you, you nailed it. And if you have a million questions as to why this happened and what it means and so on, then yeah, exactly. You get it. You picked up Luke's ethos perfectly. This was terrifying and nobody knew what to do with it. I tried to use this uh, type of ethos to teach my oldest two sons something once that this like, Set a mood, set a theme. I was looking out in the backyard and they're playing guns, like kids will do. And, and, you know, they're reenacting some war scene and one of them shooting the other one and they're, uh, you know, and they're laughing and having fun with it. And it, like, struck a nerve with me. I was like, you know, it bugged me that they're making war fun. You know, I'm like, war is terrible. It's a, it's a horrible thing. It shouldn't happen. So what I did, they were like nine and ten. I brought them in and showed them the first 30 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> And you know, I thought like, <laughs> you need to know how serious this is. You need to feel the ethos of war. They were traumatized. They swear they're still traumatized. Neither one of them will watch a war movie to this day. Like they're, to to this day, they're both like, when you bring up that movie, they shiver. Like, Ugh, I had nightmares for a week. Yeah, Esther still won't talk to me about it. So yeah, my experiment worked perfectly. It did exactly what I wanted it to do. That's how ethos works. In today's passage, the ethos seems to be what was happening in the church was amazing. People were getting healed by shadows and and miraculous things were happening. Like the ethos of everything that's coming up so far. Peter's walking the temple and he heals a guy who's been crippled for 40 years. And this, this amazing stuff was happening because God's presence was so close and so powerful. But that closeness also came at a cost. A terrifying cost. In fact, some couldn't handle the intensity of the presence. Some of them them didn't like that closeness. Uh, Luke says this after Ananias and Sapphira. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers were meeting regularly from the temple uh, area known as Solomon's Colony. But none dared to join them there. Even though all the people were held in high regard. It's kind of this weird line where... Crazy, cool things were happening, but everybody kind of held the apostles at arm's length, which is incredibly human. Like, I love how human that that is, because let's be honest. If you just watch someone um, or, or even knew someone who watched uh, someone come in and give a completely free will offering and out of nowhere, Peter calls out a sin that he had no right to know. And, and when he calls it out, the person falls over dead. And then his wife does the same thing. Be honest. How close are you going to get to Peter? I mean, what do you got in there that you're like, I'm not, nope. I'm not going anywhere near that guy. Who knows what he's going to dig out of here. I don't even want him to know. Like, how how far does that gift go? Like, what's my radius that I can keep before he goes, hey, what's going on in your guts? Yeah, I totally get it. If you saw that and he just like. Nab that out of nowhere. something He had no business understanding and he just calls it. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere near Peter. And of course, everyone loved the things the apostles were doing. Like That part you want. So yeah, you drag your people on the side of the street and you hope his shadow falls and but you don't get too close. And so we see the beginning of a story that we've seen before. We've talked about this before. This has happened before. Another time when God's presence was dangerously close. It reads like this. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of a ram's horn, and they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance and trembled with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. This is when God came down to Mount Sinai. Don't be afraid, Moses answered, for God has come in this way to test you so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. So another time when, when, the, when the close presence of God was too scary, and they sent Moses in, you, you go and we'll stay back here. It was almost the same story. And, and the people want Moses To stay close to God because Moses is doing amazing things. He parted the Red Sea. He's got this incredible power. Of course they want that part. They just don't necessarily want to get too close themselves. But both these beg the question, what is different about Peter and Moses? That they're able to get that close. What made these two guys willing to brave the presence of God when everyone else shies away? And with Moses, it's not exactly fair. Moses had a, Moses cheated a little bit. Because Moses had stood on another mountain. And as, the mountain, as this mountain, as Sinai is covered in fire, and Moses is contemplating going in there, he had, he had a funny security that nobody else had. Because one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far to the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God, where the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why is this bush burning up? I must go and see. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. So if you're entering the fire of God... It's kind of nice to know firsthand that God's fire doesn't necessarily consume. That the fire of God can burn without destroying. Moses saw it in a bush. He saw that the bush was able to stay a bush even though the fire of God consumed it. And so he knows if I go into that fire, I won't necessarily be consumed. Nobody else knew that. Nobody else had seen that. So to them, it just looks like fire. And they're like, I'm not going. Who walks into fire? But Moses had a secret. He knows there's something different about the fire of God. I guarantee that bush was on Moses' mind when he climbed the mountain. Okay, that juniper was on fire. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Just like that juniper. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I know he was thinking about that bush as he walked up there. So Moses had an advantage. But he actually had more of a knowledge. He had more than just an understanding of God's fire. He had instruction on how to handle that moment. Don't come any closer to the Lord, warn him. Take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. When Moses saw the bush, take off your sandals. Moses learned right off the bat that there is a process to approaching God. And step number one is humility and vulnerability. To take off your shoes in a rocky, mountainous ground is incredibly vulnerable. Moses had to make himself defenseless. And really this exchange sets a theme that continues through the scripture where those who draw near to the fiery presence of God do so with extreme humility. One of the most powerful images we have is in Isaiah where the prophet sees the presence of God filling the temple And it says the whole temple was filled with smoke. And the prophet says this, it is all over. I am doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people who have filthy lips. Yet I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. So Isaiah's like, well, I got too close. A sinner like me, I'm done. There's no way I survive this moment. Except something strange happens. It says, then one of the seraphim flew over me with a burning coal, he took from the altar and a pair, with a pair of tongs and he touched it to my lips and with he touched my lips with it and said see this coal has touched your lips and now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven so like Moses Isaiah finds himself confronted with the all consuming presence of God and his response is humility and vulnerability and he finds that the fire doesn't actually consume him but rather it purifies him. So let's fast forward to, to Peter. This, this apostle who not long before today's passage stood not too far away from Jesus and denied that he even knew him. And then when Jesus died, he went right back to fishing like nothing had happened. And he walked down a beach with Jesus and he, and he, and he had a conversation with Jesus and he felt the scorching, burning, searing Pleasure of Jesus' forgiveness. When Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Peter says, you know I do. He says, then get back to work. Knowing that Jesus knew all of his weakness and all of his failure, this Peter who was walking with Jesus when Jesus stopped all of his disciples and said, look, 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 stop, look. Look at that guy on the hill. And it's a sinner who can't even lift his head to heaven and he's pounding He's pounding his chest. He's saying, God, forgive me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus freezes everything. He goes, that guy got it. He got it. And the Pharisee next to him, he didn't get it. Don't look at that guy. That guy got it. That guy goes home today justified. Peter knew as well as Moses and Isaiah that to approach and function within the presence of God, you have to be humble. All three of these guys knew something else about the fire of God as well. Though you might not be consumed by it, you will be burned. You will be burned. Moses slipped up and took matters into his own hands when God had told him something. And, and God got angry with Moses. Listen to how Moses describes it. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. <laughs> he vowed that I would not cross the Jordan River. Into the good land the Lord God is giving you as your special possession. You will cross into the Jordan and occupy the land, but I will not. Instead, I will die on the east side of the river. So be careful not to break the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make idols of any shape or form. The Lord your God has forbidden this. The Lord your God is a devouring fire. He's a jealous God. Isaiah had his lips burned clean by the fire. And Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was was sawn in two by Manasseh, King Manasseh. And of course, in today's passage, Peter is flogged. He's beaten at the end of this. And and he's grateful for being counted worthy to suffer with Christ. And of course, none of these people uh, were kept from suffering. So we have a dichotomy. These men who got incredibly close to the holiness of God... Seem to function differently and miraculously in the world, which is awesome. But they also paid a high price for that, which is terrifying. But they didn't pay the price that Ananias and Sapphira paid, and that's where things get weird. I mean, let's be honest: none of us are comfortable with that story. We all understand that that. Uh, and we're humbled by the Peter and Moseses. We have a we have a great friend in China, Si Chung, um, who actually spoke to our church a few years back. and And Si Chung lives where his daily life is spreading the gospel at risk of his life. He lives in a in a place where if they get caught, they get imprisoned. And he's doing all he can to to spread the gospel there. And and I'm humbled when he comes over here. Like I'm really I'm embarrassed. Like we have it so easy. But C Chung also talked about the crazy miracles going on over there. Like the crazy stuff God is doing in that context and in that in that ethos. Like it's completely normal. He didn't even he didn't even seem weird about it. He's just talking about all the things God is doing. Like So I have no doubt that the Peters still exist. Out there. The Moseses still exist. And we're very comfortable with the crowds of Peter um, who love Jesus and love what Peter's doing, love the apostles' work, but they're more comfortable staying a few steps back. I mean I'm I'm probably one of those. Like I'm not ready to go all like I'm not ready to go Peter in. I don't want to get flogged. I'm not a big on but I'm in. Just Luke describes those people like this, but no one else dared to join them, even though they all held them in high uh, had high regard for them and that hits that hits close to home totally holds Si Chung in high regards like man i'm I love what he's doing, don't know I want to join him, but love what he's doing. We're pretty comfortable with like that. Maybe not lukewarm, but I don't know that I want hot either. We understand it. The people in this story, though, that we don't get are Ananias and Sapphira. Like, we understand the Peters. We understand the people who are in it. And we understand the people who stand back. What we don't get is Ananias and Sapphira. What on earth did they do that was so bad? (coughs) What can we extract from this crazy story about these two people that would make them drop dead? What can we pull from the story that would help us in 2021? So let's start looking at what they did wrong. What sin was so bad that God didn't just rebuke them. He just ended their lives. I mean, if we were listing sins that qualify as the really bad ones, the big ones, the stuff that you, you you might think twice about going to church with this person. What makes the list? Murder, rape, homosexuality maybe, stealing, fornication, adultery, drunkenness, drug use. What makes your list? What's so bad that you just draw a line in the sand? That's too far. In fact... Let's really shrink the, shrink the list. Not just the bad stuff that might keep somebody out of church, but what do you strike somebody dead for? Like just... It has to be a small list. Maybe people who hurt kids. I, I, my list is... I can't even think of much. What else makes the immediate death list? Whatever list you come up with, none of that comes into play in this story. Ultimately, Ananias and Sapphira did something far more terrifying to me. They came to church and tried to make themselves look holier than they were. I mean, think about what happens in this story. Luke twice... Before the story tells about the people who were coming and giving and, and they had unity and they were sharing and they were eating meals together and they were spending time together, they were taking care of the needy in their area. It was a movement of people sharing and caring for others. And Ananias and Sapphire were part of that. They sold some land. And they gave half of it to the poor. That's awesome. It's still an incredible sacrifice that they made. They sold their land and gave most of it. That's incredible. Except they didn't want the church to know that they weren't ready to give everything. They loved what was happening. They loved the church. They were, they, but they weren't quite all in. Which is fine. Except they wanted the church to think they were all in. They didn't want everybody to know that, that they were having trouble letting go. I think they probably heard everybody praising Barnabas. At the, the very end of the last chapter, Luke tells us about Barnabas who sold a bunch of land and gave it all to the church. They heard everybody oohing and ahhing over Barnabas and how awesome Barnabas was. And they wanted some of that. Everyone marveled at this other guy and they wanted people to think that they were that spiritually mature, they were that holy. So what was Ananias and Sapphira's great sin? They weren't authentic. They were phony. They were fake. They presented a holier picture than was accurate. I told you in our last sermon in this series, which was two weeks ago, that I'd, I'd spend the next two sermons talking about why we don't see the kind of power today that the early church experienced. I gave the first one last time. The church, we've lost our unity. Despite our disagreements, they were one church. Despite their disagreements, they were one church. They were unified. Committed to following Jesus' last and longest prayer that they might be one as he and the Father were one. That was Jesus' last cry to the Father. God, make them one like you and I are one. And the early church had that. And we've lost that. We fight and we bicker and we divide over theological things and and we've lost our union. I think with that we've lost some of our power. But the second one comes from today's story. Is that we lack authenticity. We wear masks. We play roles so that people will know, won't know who we really are. I mean, be honest, how many of you have struggled with church because... By your estimation, the people were phony. Come on, be real. Don't make me stand up here by myself. Yeah, we've all, we've all struggled with that. And how is that any different than what Ananias and Sapphira did? I want people to think that I'm better than I am. I don't want people to know me. See, when the scriptures talk about the fire of God's presence, it describes two functions. The fire consumes... That's the scary one. That seems to be what happens to Ananias and Sapphira, the fire consumed. But the other function is that the fire purifies. The Bible uses this metaphor often. It, it talks about gold all the time. The way gold works is on a 24 karat scale, and so 24 karat gold means that 24 parts out of 24 is gold. So 18 karat gold means 18 parts are gold, and the other six parts are some other baser metals, nickel or Something else. And the way you get gold to be more pure is you heat it until it melts and and the the other metals, gold is a heavy metal, it drops to the bottom, the other metals come to the top. It's called dross. And they melt it and then they they rake the dross off the top and what you have is the pure gold underneath. So here's the irony. We, We have this tendency to feel like you can only come into God's presence if you're pure. Like you can only enter God's presence if, if you're if you're living right and you're doing right and everything in you is right. But the Bible seems to indicate that the presence of God is what is supposed to expose the dross that needs to be dealt with. So when we're closest to the presence of God is when we're supposed to see the ugly stuff. It's what's supposed to reveal the mess but we hide our dross. We come into the presence of God with our dross neatly tucked in the back. Especially when we gather in God's presence. I don't want anybody there to know who I am. What would they think? We fight against the purifying presence of God and risk the consuming presence instead. The Hebrew language has a word for this kind of beautiful, dangerous presence of God. It is really quiet in here today. <laughs> we call it the glory of God. They say the glory of God filled a place. The English word glory doesn't really do it because we just think of shiny or pretty or glorious. But The Hebrew word for glory is, is kavod and it means the, the weight the heaviness of God. There's other times it's translated the weight of something. It's, it's kavod. I, I love the Hebrew word because it feels heavy. The kavod of God. So when the original temple was dedicated, it says the kavod of God came down to the point that the priests couldn't even stay in the temple. It was too heavy. They had to leave while the glory of God, the kavod of God was there. This attribute of God is harder to talk about than some of the others. See, we talk about the laws of God all the time. What God says you can do and don't do and, and the rules. That's logos. We talk about the logos all the time. And also we talk about the love of God all the time. That's breaks God's heart. How God loves us and, and that's the pathos. We talk about the pathos of God all the time. But the kavod of God can only be captured in narrative. That's the ethos. It's the weight. It's the weight of God. So when Moses experiences the kavod at the burning bush, he didn't pretend to have it all together. Not even a little bit. He takes off his shoes. He starts to confess his weakness. I, I'm not a very good speaker. He starts to confess his sin. They're not going to listen to me. I killed a man. Like he, he, he just bears all before God. When Isaiah experiences the kavod of God, he immediately begins to confess his sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I, I can't, I can't bear this kavod. Nowhere does anyone confront the kavod of God and put up a front, except Ananias and Sapphira. Everybody else in the scripture falls on their face. The second the kavod is closed, they fall on their face. They start confessing their sins. Ananias and Sapphira came into the kavod of God with a mask. And they were consumed. The presence of God does not demand holiness. It creates it. We come into the kavod of God as we are. And and we are purified, often by fire. This shirt, I don't know if anybody noticed, actually has a history at Open Table. It's kind of funny. When we first planted this church, this was one of my regular shirts. I wore it all the time. I actually uh, retired it because I got a hole in it. And then I painted in it. But I wore it for Dave. Because a, a good friend of mine, Donnelly, Lee, um, saw me preaching in this shirt and had a problem with it. <laughs> she. Uh, Donnelly's seen the very, very negative side of alcohol. And she felt that a preacher preaching in a beer shirt was not okay. It might glorify um, the use of alcohol and encourage people to risk more than they should. And, and so she called me, and we talked about it. We had a really long talk about it. And, and uh, I told her, you know, she was more important to me than a beer shirt. And if she would do the soul work and she would go home and pray for a week, talk to God, search her heart. And if at the end of a week she was like, I still can't stand the shirt, I said, I'll throw it away. I'm like, you're more important to me than a shirt. But I'm not going to just throw away my shirt every time somebody has a problem. So you've got to go pray about it. You do the soul work, and then we'll talk. And she called me back a few days later. She was like, I want you to keep the shirt. She was like, I talked to some of my people that don't go to church, and I was like, what did you think about a pastor who wearing a beer shirt? They were like, I'd go to that church. She was like, all right, I quit. Whatever. <laughs> It was be- and it was beautiful because our relationship was strengthened in this disagreement. We talked through it. We, we prayed through it. We spent time together through it. Rather than dividing, we grew closer to one another in the midst of it. But here's the deal. I did not wear this shirt to be like an edgy pastor, like, ham hey, and preaching a beer shirt. I wore this shirt because when we first planted the church, we met at 5 in the evening. Uh, and we had had a birthday party that day. And I went to the birthday party in my Guinness shirt. My mom bought it for me in Ireland. I like the way it fits. I like the color because when you're my size, really bright colors are really bright. So I like kind of muted colors. And it got to be time to get ready for church. And I was like uh, trying to figure out what to wear. I was like, (laughs) I can't preach in a beer shirt. And so and then all of a sudden I got convicted. And I was like, if I can't preach in a beer shirt, I probably shouldn't wear a beer shirt. Like, because I don't want to present something on stage that I'm not when I'm off stage and I sat there and I'm going to preach in a beer shirt because I want to be authentic. And this is what I wear when I'm not on stage, so I'm not going to... I was afraid of Ananias and Sapphira, if you want to be honest. I was thinking about them, like I'm not going to go and present something that I'm not. And so I I wore my beer shirt. Occasionally I get some flack from people... that I'm, I seem to be okay with not being a great role model. Sometimes people feel like I don't take sin seriously enough, and and I understand why people might think that, why it might bother some people. But the truth is, I, I take sin very seriously. I take the sin of Ananias and Sapphira very, very seriously. I don't, I don't do authenticity naturally. I, I'm actually a pretty good chameleon. I'm pretty good at measuring up the room and deciding what I need to be to fit in and, and get along with everybody and I know how to act Christian. But I try hard, I work hard to be authentic because I'm afraid of this sin. I'm afraid of this story of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean they were struck dead on the spot. That's like a that's a big deal even in the Bible. Which by the way Before I forget, I I tend to believe that God's response to their phoniness here was actually grace. This is my personal belief. I don't have any evidence for this. This is what I think. I can't know this, but my theory is, what happens if God doesn't respond strongly in this moment? Imagine if Ananias and Sapphira had gotten away with their deceit. Everyone in church would have assumed that they had sold their land and gave the full price. Everyone would have assumed they were so sacrificial and amazing, so inspiring. People would have introduced them to other couples of this is the couple that sold that land and gave it all to the church. That would have become their what they were known for. They would have been an example to others of true devotion. And all the while, Ananias and Sapphira would have known Otherwise, and they would have lived with that in the back of their mind. Nobody here knows me, nobody here really loves me. They love this idea that I presented, but not me. It would have grown harder and harder and harder to connect with anyone, to have any real relationships. Before long, Ananias and Sapphira would have grown isolated and alone. They might have even left rather than endure the agony of living a false life. It could have been that a quick exit was the most graceful thing for them. That's what I like to believe. That God knew they were going down a path that was going to destroy them. Again, I can't know that, but it's my belief. See, I think the reason God takes this sin so seriously is because the core of his being is love. Love. Love God, love others. Giving and receiving love is what it means to be God's people. And you simply cannot receive love when you're wearing a mask. The mask gets all the love, and you sit behind it alone. So, too often we sit around isolated and unloved behind a mask while we try to love other people's masks while they hide behind it. It's ridiculous and gross. To come into this place and be fake is to profane love. And love is the root of the entire gospel. That's why Peter was able to say, You weren't lying to us, but to God. So, first of all, I don't think Ananias would have seen it that way. I think Ananias would have been like us. Just assume God knows everything and God sees this and we'll, we'll repent and forgive. I think Ananias thought he was lying to Peter, not God. But Peter's like, that's not how this works. God calls the church his body, and when God commands his body to love God and love people, and you walk in to his body wearing a mask, you're not just lying to God. You're lying to the body of Christ. So the past two sermons... I've been a little preachier than normal. I know. I can tell by the silence. But these are two of my hot buttons. The two sins I'm really afraid of. Division and being inauthentic. It's not that if we commit these sins, we're going to go to hell. We commit all these sins. We all commit these sins. And the blood of Jesus covers them like any other sin. But these two carry a ton of biblical weight. So much emphasis on the scriptures put on unity, on, the, on one body, one church, and yet we're so flippant about judging which theological groups are in and which ones are out, and that terrifies me. I won't do it. And my goodness, probably the strongest reaction to sin in the entire New Testament happens because a, cu- a couple present themselves to be holier and more devout than they really were, and that terrifies me too. So how do we respond to this? This is going to be a short response today. I'd love to see us respond to this message in two ways. First, be you. Lay down the mask. The truth is, Jesus and your church family are dying to love you. And if all you're showing us is a mask, you're, you're cheating yourself and you're cheating us. Give us a chance to love the real you. And second, please, oh, please. Please learn to value authenticity in others please don't mistake holiness for acceptable behavior if the true holiness of God were to enter this room what you would see is dross everywhere so when your church family allows you to see the real them dross and all love them period there's n- there's no room for judgment in that moment if someone gets so close to you and the presence of God is so close that their draw shows they could hide it they could put up a mask every one of us knows how to do that if someone is real with you they're trying to be real with you you didn't find anything out Al. we all know how to put up a mask we all know how to be fake So when someone comes and they're real, honor that moment. Love them. Authenticity is a gamble and it's terrifying. And the damage you can do by judging or mistreating someone when they're authentic is huge. So don't do it. I don't tell people what to do very often, but I'll, I'll tell you what to do in that one. Don't do that. Here's what I believe. I believe if we commit to unity even when we disagree, and surely we will, if we commit to loving each other and really loving the entire body of Christ, and we embrace true holiness, which means being authentic and allowing the dross to come to the surface, I believe we'll see God do great things in our little ragamuffin bunch the same way he did with a similar bunch 2,000 years ago. Let's go to the table.